How We Got Here is sponsored by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Welcome back to How We Got Here. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond. I have to first say thank you to all of you who have subscribed to this podcast. We so appreciate it. It's truly amazing to hear about the number of children that are being introduced to topics and history. Really, it's one of the best compliments that we can get. This week on How We Got Here, we are turning back the clock from July 8th through the 14th. We start this episode with a story that takes us from the segregated playgrounds of Richmond to the grassy courts of historic Wimbledon. The birth of a tennis legend who transcended the game. A soft-spoken man who quietly broke racial barriers, turning his star power into altruism, activism, and hope. On July 10th, 1943, Arthur Ashe entered our world. Arthur Ashe was my hero because of what he stood for, because of what he did, and how he accomplished what he did. He did it the right way. That's Lenny Simpson, a lifelong friend of Arthur Ashe. We caught up with him over Skype. He's in a coffee shop making time to talk about one of the greatest influencers of his life. With a racket in his hand or with a racket not in his hand. He did it with dignity and grace, and I will never, ever forget him for all of the rest of my entire life because without him, I would not be who I am today. Arthur Ashe is a hometown hero for Richmond, Virginia. Born in 1943, his mother died at the young age of 27. Ash and his brother Johnny were raised by their dad, who worked as a handyman. It was Ash Sr. who encouraged Arthur to excel in both sports and school, lessons that he would instill on many others years later. That is what Arthur Ashe believed in, not only just hitting a little fuzzy tennis ball, but the importance of education, because he felt that that was the difference of everything. Because with a great education, you can live where you want to, you can get the right job for your family, and you can make some of the right choices in life. Ash started playing tennis at age seven, forced to play on the segregated tennis courts of Richmond's largest blacks-only public playground at Brookfield Park. He had one job to do and one focus, and that was to become the greatest tennis player in the world, despite the odds, despite the adversity that he had to go against. Arthur Ashe's natural talent caught the eye of legendary tennis coach Robert Walker Johnson, who became his mentor. Johnson taught him sportsmanship and the composure that would later become his hallmark style. 
And Dr. Johnson believed in the philosophy of old school. And the old school method is the older kids take care of the younger kids. So he assigned Arthur Ashe to take care of little Lenny Simpson. And so that's how it all started. Lenny Simpson was just nine years old and remembers 15-year-old Arthur vividly. He said, I want you to remember something. If you can count on your hand in a lifetime of having five genuine friends, not acquaintances, genuine friends, then you have been totally blessed in your lifetime. Now, this is a young man that is almost 16 telling me those kinds of things. In 1958, Arthur Ashe would become the first African-American to play in the Maryland Boys Championship. It was also his first integrated tennis competition. But the racial roadblocks, they would continue. In high school in 1960, Ashe still could not compete against white players in segregated Richmond. He couldn't even use the city's indoor courts, which were closed to black players. I think what was so special about his game is, number one, of the adversity that he had to go up against in order to just hit a tennis ball, a simple tennis ball. Not only did he have to worry about the other great players in the country that he had to play against, but he had to go up against all of the adversities of the color of his skin. Where were we going to stay? How were we going to travel? What time were we going to travel? All of those kinds of things, not even talking about the names that we were called when we were on the tour. But Arthur was such a very special individual. Those things just did not bother him on the outside, but on the inside, they bothered him greatly. Around every turn, he had to ask permission to play in a specific tournament. He had to find courts that would accept the color of his skin. Finally, in 1963, a breakthrough for the 20-year-old six-foot-one phenom. He became the first black player ever selected for the United States Davis Cup team. At the time, he was attending UCLA on scholarship. He became a member of ROTC, which required him to join active military service after graduation. This was in exchange for money for tuition. He formally joined the Army in 1966. It was his brother, Johnny Ash, that kept him on the tennis courts and out of the Vietnam War. Johnny took Arthur's place. Johnny made the ultimate sacrifice by serving in the Vietnam War, and he did it so his brother did not have to serve. That, to me, is what we call real sacrifice. To go back in, serve in the awful Vietnam War, and so many soldiers and young men that were killed. If Ash had gone to Vietnam, we don't know whether he would have made it back. We don't know whether he ever would have had the opportunity to win the U.S. Open in 1968. By the way, Ash only got $20 for winning the U.S. Open. 
$20. He was still considered an amateur at the time, so he wasn't allowed to accept the $12,000 prize money. $12,000 in 1968. That was a ton of money he had to turn down. Ash was discharged from the Army in 1969 after being promoted all the way to first lieutenant. After winning the U.S. Open, he goes on to win the Australian Open and Davis Cups with the U.S. team. But his fight for racial equality never ended. In 1969, he applied for a visa to play in the South African Open, but he was denied by the South African government, who enforced its apartheid policy of racial segregation. He wouldn't give up, though. He applied for that visa every year. Four years later, he was granted a visa to enter the country and play in the tournament. When he walked into a room, the way he carried himself, and when he spoke, everybody listened. And everybody listened all around the world. Two years later, it was the first All-American Wimbledon final in decades. On July 5th, 1975, Ash was just a few days shy of his 32nd birthday. And he finally won Wimbledon, defeating defending champion Jimmy Connors. Ash would play for a few more years, even winning a doubles championship at the Australian Open. But at the age of 36, in 1979, Ash suffered his first heart attack during a tennis clinic in New York. He underwent heart surgery and officially retired in 1980. His career record, 996 wins and 47 titles. 49. Ash suffered a second heart attack and subsequent bypass surgery three years later. And it's widely believed he contracted HIV from a blood transfusion during that second surgery. Ash kept that diagnosis from everyone except his wife and young daughter. He was forced to announce it to the world in April of 1992, after his diagnosis was leaked to a newspaper, USA Today. A year later, he created the Arthur Ashe Foundation for the defeat of AIDS, raising millions. He died from pneumonia in New York, February 6, 1993. That relationship lasted right up to the day that he died. Uh, we called each other and promised each other that we would call each other every seven days. And we never missed not calling each other every seven days, no matter where we were. He was an incredible individual and person. 26 years after his death, Arthur Ashe once again held center court in his hometown. Just two weeks ago, the city renamed a historic roadway that cuts through the center of Richmond. Arthur Ashe Boulevard. The street naming is not Ashe's only honor in his birth city. There's a building named for him and a statue on the historic Monument Avenue. Jefferson Davis Highway, you know, you have Stewart Circle. Those guys have statues too. So. 
why not acknowledge our black heroes and their accolades with a street and a statue. Look at the history and look at my uncle's background and the things that he did. It's a pretty easy no-brainer. That's Arthur's nephew, David Harris. This change took years to happen. Much like Arthur lived his life, his family kept coming back until the answer was finally yes. Oh man, a lot of excitement. A lot of folks were like, finally. Ash is still the only black man to win the singles titles at Wimbledon, the US and Australian Opens. But he's so much more than a storied tennis player. Arthur Ashe, the highly principled activist, author, fighter for civil rights and racial equality worldwide. Now to the life and death and funeral procession of another Richmond icon from a century earlier, a man who served as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court for more than three decades, John Marshall. It was July 9, 1835. Marshall died three days earlier in Philadelphia, but his body arrived in Richmond for the biggest funeral procession the city had ever seen. To the afternoon of July 9th, 1835, the bells of the city are tolling and they closed down all the shops. It was the largest funeral procession that anyone at the time could remember. In the newspapers, it's described as the greatest loss for the country uh, since the death of Washington in 1799. So this was a really big deal for the country. It was a really big deal for the city. That's Kevin Walsh, a professor at the University of Richmond, where he teaches constitutional law. I went to undergraduate at Dartmouth, and then I studied theology at Notre Dame, uh, and then I went to law school at Harvard. We interviewed Walsh right at the exhibit on Marshall he helped put together at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Walsh's eyes light up when he talks about his hero, John Marshall. I've heard that. I've, I, I, I resemble that remark, I think. So. <laughs> it's frankly infectious and contagious. Did you ever think you'd be talking about John Marshall on the podcast? Um, you know, at some point in my life, perhaps. Um, you know, if you ask my kids, they, they think there's probably nothing else I know how to talk about. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, podcasts are amazing. Hopefully people who uh, share those interests and passions uh, will be inspired to check out a little bit more about John Marshall. And to do that, we'll start at the beginning. John Marshall is born on September 24th, 1755. Like Lincoln, he grew up in essentially a log cabin on the, the frontier. Specifically, Fauquier County in present day Northern Virginia, which was the frontier in the 1750s. John was the oldest of 15 children. He kind of looked up to his father his entire life. Marshall's dad wanted him to be a lawyer, basically. He says, from the beginning, I was destined for the bar. But there were some disturbances, and Marshall says, my studies were interrupted by the troubles with the mother country, with Great Britain. Shots were fired at Lexington and Concord in 1775, and Marshall, still a teenager, takes up arms. Where you really see 
Marshall's stride into public life is as a 19-year-old lieutenant in the Culpeper Minutemen. It was there that his leadership qualities began to shine through. When a captain didn't show up, Marshall led the Minutemen through exercises. Again, he was just 19. There is a kind of natural leadership and also a kind of judgment and temperament that is remarked on. His cabin mate at Valley Forge would later write of this time and say he was the best tempered man that I knew. When people were discouraged, he'd encourage them. If you go back and look at the records, his unit was healthier. There were fewer people absent from service. Now, does that not because he had magical powers of healing or anything like that, but um, because he was able to hold his men together. These Minutemen became part of Virginia's militia, and Marshall found himself under the command of another father of sorts, George Washington. While honoring his father and respecting his father, he also honored and respected the singular founding father, George Washington. So he wrote the first full biography of Washington. Marshall's journey from a lieutenant of the Culpeper Minutemen to Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court took some wild twists and turns. So he actually studies law for six weeks at William & Mary. He takes in some law lectures from George Wythe, really during a break from military service. He gets his law license, signed by then-governor and his second cousin, Thomas Jefferson. But there's nowhere to practice because the courts are closed. So he can't practice law until we have peace with the British. Once the Revolutionary War ended, Marshall builds a law practice, at one point partnering with Patrick Henry to take a case to the U.S. Supreme Court, which they lost. But Marshall's talents really impressed people who watched him argue the case. He starts coming into national prominence through his law practice and also through his connections to Washington from the military. Washington wanted to appoint him Attorney General of the United States. Marshall said no. He wanted Marshall to run for Congress. Marshall said no. Story has it that Marshall, after a couple days, he gets up really early to leave and there's George Washington in his full military uniform basically saying, look, I serve my country. It's time for you to do it. Imagine it. The Founding Father, the Great Washington, standing before you, dressed as a general, commanding you to serve your country. Who would say no? So Marshall runs for Congress and wins. Probably what put him over the edge was an endorsement from Patrick Henry. Henry and Marshall had been adversaries about a decade earlier because they were on opposite sides of whether or not to ratify the Constitution. So Henry's endorsement was a big deal. You have John Marshall, who as a 19-year-old, is wearing literally emblazoned on his chest as a Minuteman, Patrick Henry's famous words, liberty or death. Give me liberty or give me death. I had to play it again. I cannot get enough of the reenactment of that speech at St. John's Church in Richmond. It's such a great moment. Okay, back to our story. As a member of Congress, Marshall ascends the ranks. The president at the time, John Adams, tried to appoint Marshall as his Secretary of War. Marshall didn't want that job, but before he could even find out he'd been appointed and to say no to it, uh, there's a vacancy in Secretary of State 
Adams appoints Marshall Secretary of State, and it's as Secretary of State that Marshall supervises the construction of the Capitol. It's also as Secretary of State that when there is a vacancy in the Chief Justiceship due to the sickness and resignation of Oliver Ellsworth, that Adams has this important job to fill as Chief Justice. But Marshall wasn't even Adams' first choice. He asks John Jay to do it. John Jay had been the first Chief Justice, and Jay writes this famous letter back rejecting the job, basically saying, the federal judiciary will never have the energy, weight, and dignity befitting a national tribunal. I'd rather stay here in New York. I have a real job like governor of New York. It's the Secretary of State, John Marshall, who receives that letter, takes it to President John Adams. And John Adams says, well, I suppose I must appoint you. That was 1801, and the rest is history. He would serve as Chief Justice for the next 34 years until his death in July of 1835. John Marshall, the longest serving Chief Justice in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court and a Richmond native. He lived in Richmond his entire life. He built a house in the early 1790s in walking distance from the Capitol. It's where he wrote some of the most significant opinions. The house still stands today, right next to the Richmond courthouse that bears his name. Marshall had 10 children, six of whom lived to adulthood, but his wife, who he called My Dearest Polly, died in the early 1830s. She was buried in Shaco Hill Cemetery, which was then called the sort of new cemetery. He would visit her grave every Sunday, and one day, walking back home from her grave, he collapsed. Someone who saw him go down brought him back to his Richmond house. He was then taken to a doctor in Philadelphia. His health was failing. Uh, he knew that he was dying. He wrote his own uh, inscription for his tombstone, which was really quite plain, just noting he was born, that he married Mary Willis Ambler, he called my dearest Polly, and he left the date blank, but he said this blank day in July 1835. He wrote that inscription on July 4th, and he died two days later on July 6th. Any of you who listened to episode five know that the 4th of July was not a good day for politicians from Virginia, as Jefferson and Monroe died on that date. But Marshall's death was treated no differently. Uh, this was viewed as a national calamity. The Philadelphia Bar gathered to honor him. They passed resolutions in the city, put together a delegation, to accompany his body back down to Richmond. Shortly afterwards, the news of his death reaches Richmond. They form a plan for a procession. So they all gather at the Capitol in the afternoon of July 9th, 1835. Businesses were ordered to close. The courts adjourned. Government work wasn't being done. Private work wasn't being done. It's what everyone's talking about. There's a sense of grief. The words that people use, they say it's a calamity for our country. It's a calamity for uh, the Commonwealth to lose this great figure who was a connection to the revolutionary generation. The generation that started the United States of America. John Marshall, one of its often unsung heroes, was buried in Shaco Hill Cemetery, next to his dearest Polly, underneath a headstone whose inscription he had written less than a week earlier. Eight years ago this week, I told a story of the uncovering of an African burial ground in Richmond's historic Shaco Bottom. 
If you aren't familiar with Richmond, in the early 1800s, Shaco Bottom was undesirable, low-lying land in the city, which made it ground zero for the slave trade. As with many sites like this, dark histories are often covered up and forgotten. In 2011, Virginia Commonwealth University was using the land as a parking lot when tensions finally boiled over. We say VCU, get your asphalt off our people. That site will serve us much better as a place of memorial and as a place of learning and honesty. There were lawsuits and protests to have the site preserved and honored. And in the NBC 12 archives on July 12, 2011, the activists who fought to remove the parking lot return to see uncovered land for the very first time. We've been acknowledged a little bit. Still a lot of work to be done. Still a lot of work, yeah. yeah. Donnell Brantley and Rolanda McMillan never thought they'd see this day. Back in 2011, on the 150th anniversary of the start of the Civil War, they used their bodies as shields to try and stop cars from parking here. We don't know who's there, mm. but we do know yeah, that this is where Black America started. This two-acre location is where many African-Americans can trace their roots. A map dating back to at least 1804 calls this area burial ground for Negroes. Though history tells us this site's significance is much more than a cemetery. I think that the Shaco Bottom area in and of itself is a sacred place. Not only were people bought and sold there, people were incarcerated and held in slave pens. They were auctioned there. Families were split up. Sean Utzi is the chair of African American Studies at VCU. He directed an award-winning documentary about the battle to reclaim the burial ground. We are not good about talking uh, about race. And Richmond is a place centered in race. In American history. And so to walk around and to pretend to be in denial about that history does none of us any good. The debate over a parking lot in Richmond had roots buried far deeper than the asphalt could reach. Slavery played a massive role in how this city grew in the years leading up to the Civil War. In the 1830s, Alexandria was the largest slave market in the U.S. In the 1840s, that was Richmond. That's Dr. Karen Sherry. She's a curator at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. She helped create a new exhibit at the museum that looks back at the 400 years since the first recorded captive Africans arrived on the shores of Virginia. It really fundamentally shaped the, the course of American history and the nature of American society. She's an expert, a New York native that has served as a curator at museums in Maine and Brooklyn. And she obviously agrees. The study of history is incredibly important. I'm obviously biased. I'm a historian, of course. I, I think history is important. You know, we kind of have to understand where we came from as a society in order to appreciate where we are today and, and to guide us as to where we go for the future. But when you look back at the history of slavery in Virginia, 1619 in particular, it didn't take off as quickly as you might have thought. Initially, most of the labor for the colony was provided by white indentured servants from England. 
They were used to cultivate tobacco, which is very labor-intensive. Planters realized it was much more profitable to them if they could use enslaved Africans. In 1670, 80% of the colony's labor was provided by indentured servants. By around 1700, 1710, that ratio is reversed. 80% of the labor is provided by enslaved Africans. Slavery was pretty deeply entrenched in Virginia's economy and society by 1700. Think about that. In a span of just 30 years, this part of the New World moved drastically towards the dependence of slave labor. And the international slave trade did not slow down during the 18th century. Throughout this long history up through 1865, Virginia always had one of the largest populations of enslaved people of any colony and then state. 40% of the population of Virginia was enslaved for at least a century. Just horrifying. We also see Virginia developing into the economically and politically most powerful colony of the British colonies in, in North America. And that was largely through the tobacco economy. Tobacco became basically the currency, uh, the money that, that drove Virginia's economy. The money driving the economy came from the blood of slaves. The planter system was one that concentrated wealth and political power among a very small elite class of planters. And this was during the time of the American Revolution, the fight for liberty and freedom from Britain. The irony in this time period, striking. The deep paradox of that sentiment, given that all of the original 13 British colonies practiced slavery in that period. After the revolution, we do see an increasing divide over the issue of slavery. Generally, it's regional. We see all of the northern states gradually abolishing slavery while it becomes ever more deeply entrenched in the south. But agriculture in Virginia was changing, with crops requiring less work being planted to help revive the soil from tobacco's ravenous roots. We have the situation where Virginia planters don't need quite as many slaves as, as they had in the past if they've shifted their crops from tobacco to a greater variety. They were planting more wheat and corn, but things were also changing in the states to our south. We start to see a rising demand for enslaved labor for what became known as King Cotton. But in 1808, the U.S. government banned the international slave trade, saying that no slaves were to be imported from other countries. But business was booming in the Deep South. And it's here where we see the rise in the domestic slave trade and Richmond's role in this horror against other human beings. This is something that many people don't know. They, they think of Virginia economy and they think of tobacco. And while tobacco was always, and I believe it still is, the largest agricultural industry in Virginia in the antebellum period of the 19th century, the decades leading up to the Civil War, the domestic slave trade was Virginia's largest industry. Not cotton, not tobacco, the sale of people. Throughout this period, Virginia was the largest force in the domestic slave trade in that it was the state that exported the highest number of enslaved peoples of any U.S. state. 
Here in Richmond, people were bought and sold in an area you can walk around in today, Shaco Bottom. The slave trade was concentrated in the area around 15th Street, so just a few blocks east of the state capitol. And that proximity, I think, is, is very symbolic and very meaningful in and of itself. The business was brutal, and it involved way more entities than just a slave owner, auctioneer, and buyer. The railroad industry by the 1840s and 50s, most of the tens of thousands of enslaved people who were sent usually downstate were transported by the railroad or through waterways. The mighty James River was a highway for the sale of slaves. It involved auctioneers, it involved banks, it involved suppliers of provision, whether it was clothes to clothe the enslaved people who were put up on the block or whether it was food for them. There were a series of slave prisons. Many people have probably heard of Lumpkin's Jail, which was one of the most notorious slave prisons right in the kind of valley of Shaco Bottom, the base of Shaco Bottom in an area that was called Hell's Half Acre. That name, Hell's Half Acre, a name that lived up to its meaning. Enslaved people were kept, sometimes for just a few days, sometimes for a few months. They were kept in prison under horrific conditions as they awaited sale. These sales in Richmond played host to some of the most disgusting examples of human behavior in recorded history. Various authors describe the scenes of intense emotional horror of witnessing families being split apart on the auction block, of children being ripped away from their mothers. One in five marriages between enslaved people were broken up through the slave trade. Couples were split up as one was sent off to the Deep South, and one in three children were separated from their parents. Those kinds of personal tragedies, the familial impact of the slave trade also underscores not just how horrific it was, but how impactful it was on the lives of Virginians. I mean, we probably drive our cars or maybe walk or drive a bus or something past these grounds where very, very painful history happened. And I think as a society, America has never fully reckoned with the legacy of 246 years of slavery. Centuries of enslaved people, thousands bought and sold right here in Richmond. A history covered over by interstates and even parking lots. The sacred ground where many in Black America can trace their roots. Finally revealed less than a decade ago. Back in episode one, we talked about D-Day, specifically the Bedford Boys and their sacrifice on June 6, 1944. This year marked the 75th anniversary of one of the largest invasions the world has ever seen. But what we often don't hear about is what happened after D-Day. Of course, the idea then was for the United States to break out of the beaches in Normandy, push across France, and ultimately into Germany. 
and, and the war. That's James Pascalini. He retired from the Army as a lieutenant colonel and worked as the deputy director of logistics for the CIA. He's originally from Pittsburgh, but he'll be in Richmond on July 11th to honor his uncle, who was killed July 11th, 1944. My family always talked about uh, his service and his sacrifice. My family has a uh, tradition of service to the military. My grandfather and grandmothers, all four of them came from Italy, immigrated to the United States around the turn of the century in 1900. They had uh, eight children, six boys and two girls. Five of the boys served in World War II. And my dad was he really means almost. Ben was in the Army Corps of Engineers. All of them. Bay was Army Air Corps, and Uncle Frank was uh, Armor. It was his Uncle Frank who sacrificed his life for our country 75 years ago this week during the battle for Hill 192 in France. But his story begins on D-Day as he and his comrades hit the sands of Omaha Beach. Had a very difficult time. Uh, Omaha was considered one of the hardest uh, beaches to hit in the D-Day invasion. 17 tanks uh, were deployed as part of his company. Uh, nine of the tanks were lost at sea, and only eight of them actually reached Omaha Beach. So they took heavy losses right from the very beginning of D-Day. But Corporal Frank Pascalini made it past the beach. Next came Hill 192. Hill 192 was a piece of high ground near St. Lowe, France. The United States military, of course, tried to take Hill 192, whoever controls the high terrain, controls a lot of the defensive positions, and can really influence the battle. The Germans were very heavily fortified on the hill, so when they first attempted to take it in June, they failed. So they gave up and decided to regroup. And then on July 10th, they decided it was time to make another push for the hill, to take the hill so they could take St. Lowe, France, ultimately the push out of Normandy across France, and then all the way to Berlin. The strategy was in place, and the next morning, Pascalini was part of the first wave to try to take that hill. So at 6 o'clock that morning, the attack began. Six Sherman tanks of Alpha Company, 741st Tank Battalion, led the assault on the hill. That's Pascalini's battalion. It was going uphill. Of course, it was wet and muddy that day. So they were fighting uphill against the heavily fortified German defensive position. It was overcast and foggy that morning when the attack began. There were five Americans in the tank. Staff Sergeant Fair was the tank commander, specialist for Tech Nixon, uh, Corporal Pascalini, my uncle, Private Perkins, and Private Buchanan. All six of the Sherman tanks were destroyed by German fire within minutes as soon as they crossed the line of departure. This tank, with the five of these soldiers in it, took a direct hit from a German rocket. The lieutenant saw the tank take the hit. There was an initial explosion when the rocket hit. Two to three additional explosions followed from the fuel and ammunition in the tank with the heat and the flames. They also exploded. Of the five Americans inside the tank, four of them died, including Corporal Pascalini. Only the tank gunner, Private Buchanan, miraculously survived. But the ultimate sacrifice of life was not in vain. So the attack continued on. Hill 192 was taken that day. The Germans ultimately lost control of the high grounds. Large number of German POWs surrendered. With the loss of Hill 192 from the Germans and the United States taking the hill, they were able to take the town of St. Lowe. And then they were able to break out of the Normandy Peninsula and continue on the attack through France and ultimately in through Germany. Despite their death, 
the Americans completed that particular mission, ultimately leading to the end of World War II. VE Day would not have come, Victory in Europe Day would not have happened that quickly if Hill 192 hadn't fallen, St. Lowe hadn't fallen, and the U.S. couldn't push out of Normandy. Ultimately, after the battle was won, they send in uh, teams to retrieve uh, human remains. So when they got to the tank, which again had been burnt out completely, multiple explosions, there were very few identifiable human remains in the tank. Crews were able to identify the remains of Private Perkins, but none of the other three men, including Corporal Pascalini. So they buried the other three in a, a joint casket. They were originally during the war interred also in St. Lowe Cemetery, the American cemetery in France. Once World War II ended, they looked to repatriate remains of soldiers based on the wishes of the family. So the joint casket with the three soldiers in, including my Uncle Frank, were repatriated back to the United States around 1950. Which leads us back to why James Pascalini will be in Richmond on the 75th anniversary of his uncle's death. Uncle Frank is from Pennsylvania. Staff Sergeant Fair was from Pennsylvania. Willis Nixon was from North Carolina. So the decision was made to bury them in a centrally located cemetery. And thus they picked Richmond, Virginia as a national cemetery. But there was no formal military ceremony, which is to reinterment. Three quarters of a century later, those three men will finally be honored for the ultimate sacrifice. We'll have the Army Band participating. Bugler will come and blow taps. A uh, vocalist will come and sing the national anthem. A Army chaplain will be there to pr provide uh, prayer service. They will have a military firing squad and a uh, military honor guard to present the folded flag to the next of kin, which is scheduled to be my Uncle Frank's granddaughter. A tradition of military service. The final honor. The service of the Pascalini family continuing on. We've been serving for generations, so I'm happy that we're able to make sure that these men, their memory will not be forgotten and their sacrifice is greatly appreciated by not only our family, but by the military and um, I think by the entire country. This honor, this remembrance, hailing back to a famous quote by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Those who have long enjoyed such privileges and freedom forget in time that men have died to win them. The whole purpose of the ceremony on July 11th is to ensure that we're demonstrating that we will not forget and we will never forget those sacrifices. Sacrifices of the greatest generation for the freedoms we enjoy today. The epitome of how we got here. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. I want to send a special thank you this season to the very hard work of my friends, digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly. Without these two, this podcast would not happen. Thank you to NBC 12 anchor Carla Reddit, who tracked down and interviewed Mr. Lenny Simpson. To Tina Rodriguez for the beautiful How We Got Here logo. Kevin Walsh, James Pascalini, Sean Utsi, Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. 
This is our final episode of season one. But don't worry, we'll be back in your life next Monday with a bonus episode. And we're already hard at work on season two of How We Got Here. It will start in November. And if you don't mind, rate and review us so others will find us. Music